Welcome to this latest edition of the Fundraising Radicals podcast. I'm your host, Craig Pollard. Today's conversation is with Dr. Tian Nguyen, who is the Vietnam Country Director for the international NGO HealthBridge, which is headquartered in Canada. Anne was born during the final days of the US war in Vietnam, and you'll find out how the legacies of that conflict have influenced her choice of mission and shaped the shifting priorities of nutrition advocacy. Today, we'll be talking about the limitations that are faced by international funding organizations working in Vietnam, and how to secure funding for nutrition advocacy and finally balance government partnerships. Imagine, for example, having to secure formal government sign-off to renew your organizational registration every five years or for every single new project and event or conference. Now, Anne was reluctant to record this interview because she felt that her English was not good enough, her words. I strongly disagreed. I let her know that our listeners were willing to listen harder in order to learn the important lessons from people like Anne, who are fundraising beyond the narrow borders of BBC-style English. This reminds me that English is the dominant language of fundraising and the international charity sector. It's therefore exclusive and a massive barrier for those trying to fundraise. People like Anne who are qualified doctors and speak multiple languages. Imagine completing a 60-page funding proposal in a language that is your third or fourth. English as the dominant language of fundraising is also a barrier for us. It gets in the way of us learning lessons from other cultures and places as people feel less confident of the value of their experiences and are more reluctant to share their deeply valuable expertise. I hope you enjoy meeting Anne today. Welcome, Anne, how are you today? Thank you, Chris, I'm, I'm fine, I'm doing well. Where, where are you right now? Uh, I'm, in, in, I'm in Hanoi, Vietnam, the capital of Vietnam. In the north, yeah? Yeah, in the north uh, of Vietnam, yes. And, you know, in Vietnam, we divided into three areas, north, center, and the south, and uh, we are based in the north of Vietnam. And three very different areas. Exactly. Three very different areas in terms of the weather, in terms of the cuisine, in terms of characteristics of people. So, But we, we send the, uh, share the same language, of course. Of course, of course. <laughs> What I'd really like to hear about a little more from you is 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 about your role and what you do, but also about sort of where where you came from. Where did you grow up? Where did you study your your current roles and why nutrition advocacy? Why are you doing what you do? What has driven you and taken you to this point today? Yeah, very interesting question. I was born and grew up in a poor family in Hanoi few days before the American war ended in Vietnam in 1975. And I graduated from Hanoi Medical University to become a medical doctor since 1998 and received a full scholarship from the Australian government to obtain my master's degree on women's health and society from the University of Melbourne. And as you know, like for any kind of war, like for, for Vietnam, the same time, uh, the same situation. And uh, after the war, the country infrastructure was destroyed by bombing, by landmine, and part of other the, the terrible landscape have been stripped by the toxic 
chemical like Asian uh, orange and um, like like any other country recovering from 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 years of war, establishing and rebuilding can be overwhelming. And furthermore, from the United States, impose a trade embargo for Vietnam and trying to um, to cutting off the world record country, not only from the U.S. export and import, but also from other nations that bow to American pressure. Uh, and then in addition, the uh, United States presses other international bodies to deny the assistance to Vietnam. So like, my, like, like other families at that time, we also very poor and have not enough food to fill up with stomach. And in order to have uh, food to feed up to our stomach, it was a great effort from my, my parents. Mm-hmm. And even at that time, we didn't dare not much to think about the nutritious food. We just think that um, have something to eat is an important role. So that's why I think this is um, the reason why people at my age is shorter than the new generation. Uh, and I, ah. uh, so I, I think that the, the so so the mal the malnutrition is so uh, has re- has resulted following the war has resulted in in that in your generation exactly. being smaller yes. than yeah. that that which preceded and that which followed exactly and nowadays like like, like my family or other family we can observe that the children now higher and taller than their parents, like, like my, my, my family now, I'm the shortest at <laughs> <is> my house. <laughs> <laughs> but nowadays, the children, I also thought that the children and youth nowadays are facing with overweight and obesity. Besides, uh, the, besides the issue that they have less physical exercise, but nutrition is also play a very important role for that line. Unprocessing food with high sodium, sugar, trans fats. So I think that's a developing country like Vietnam have a, like double burden in terms of nutrition. So that's why I'm thinking that um, when when we can work on nutrition, advocate for nutrition for better generation. Is that's what I'm I'm thinking for that. Wow, that's so. Vietnam has gone from one nutrition crisis. Ah, uh, yes, long time ago. Yes. To within 40, 40 or fifty years to another. Nutrition crisis is it is it reaching that point now in Vietnam? Actually, we don't know how we can say that it's a reaching the, the point on or not. But nowadays we see that the the problem for obesity in particularly in urban area is very alarming. Let let me uh, remember the figures. Uh, after ten years, the obesity and overweight. Uh, read from children from five to nineteen years old, it more than double. Wow! So it is, and it is for the nationwide. But we, when we zoom in in a specific um, Ho Chi Minh city, it's the biggest uh, city in Vietnam. We can see that almost forty three percent of children are obesity and overweight. So it's, I found that is very alarming. So it, I, I mean that for Vietnam, we have double burden in some areas like ethnic minority area or highland area. We have problem for uh, stunting and underweight. But for an urban area, we have a problem for obesity and overweight. And 
so so sort of the American invasion of Vietnam and the war led to that first nutrition challenge and in some ways that legacy I guess the the the, the food the sweets the corporate food coming into Vietnam has reinforced that is 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 it a is it a case of education is it a case of government policy is it a case of all of this together I think it's a case for all of effort together from the government side they uh, they, they they change the policy and to more focus for producing more more, more rice more uh, they have a policy to support for the farmer and for the agriculture to develop it is from the government side and also from the the people people they apply the new technology new uh, new kind of how can i say the the speech the house uh, uh, the, the technology to support to make this more higher uh, higher production for the, for the food so i think that is a combination and also the, the one thing that vietnam nowadays is, is we have more developed so we have uh, we, we, we can produce more things and then we can uh, also import other things we, we do not have. So, like for example, before, like in my age, we do not have milk. Mm. But nowadays, they have more milk for children to, to take or more nutritious food to take. And then we... Uh, in, in 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 some areas we like using have more kind of how can they say it's a food is now is more available for people and which are very achievable like it's affordable it's, it's it's cheap and I'm really interested in what is it about your work now that sort of really sort of excites you and switches your lights on and I know you were having a meeting about a new potential sugar tax that's coming in to, to Vietnam is that what what is that and and what role has have you been playing in 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 helping that to progress yes uh, exactly that uh, for help Rich is also joining with others um, agency to uh, advocate for the sugar tax in in Vietnam because uh, recently the Ministry of Finance uh, released their proposal to to revise the excise tax and they including the um, the the, the, the SSB, the sugar sweetened beverage, in that uh, in as a subject for tax, and then um, and then uh, WHO is recommended for uh, tobacco, alcohol, and sugar drinks. Uh, tax is um, one of the best. Uh, they could best buy option to tackle the problem from using uh, such kind of harmful products like tobacco, alcohol, and uh, SSBs. So we're joining with the UNICEF, WHO, and GHAI here in Vietnam to advocate for the, the government of Vietnam for uh, having SSB tax. And that's, that's a, it's always a, a difficult balance uh, I, I guess your partnership with government advocating and and being a sort of fundraising organization as well how do you balance that partnership because I think you know there are a lot of restrictions on what foreign uh, organizations like Healthbridge like UNICEF can do in Vietnam 
in regard to fundraising and communications and advocacy. How can you can you tell us about some of those restrictions and how you navigate and balance that? Actually, it's this um, yeah, the government of Vietnam has some regulation to um, uh, to monitor and uh, for all the NGOs here in Vietnam. In one hand, it's just like to to monitor, but also the ways they get uh, provide support for for INGO with some regulation. For example, we have to get the permission to for the organization to have the here in Vietnam, operate here in Vietnam every five years. And whenever we receive any project, we need uh, another approval from them. And when, even when the project is approved... For every, is that every every new project that you do has to be approved by the government of, of Vietnam? Yes, 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 every project. And even when the project is approved, and when we have conduct any workshop or conference, Involving with expatriates, like this funding from international NGO, we also need getting the permission to asking for the permission again. So it is a lot of regulation, of course. So, but I I found that this is um here we we because we we work we work with the government and we work with the partner here and we keep thing is a transparency. So we 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 just following. The regulation we we just even it's, it's time consuming of course but we we still following that um, requirement from the government. Yeah, can you fundraise in Vietnam? Uh for SINGO we cannot fundraising from the donor in Vietnam. Only accepted. Which is huge. E- yes, and only accepted. For the case for like for emergencies, so for emergency response, and also is it that amount of money cannot spend for our staffing, right? And this is very impossible for us if we do anything without staffing. So so what? So our fundraising, yeah. So our uh, fundraising is for the donor out of Vietnam, not donor in Vietnam. Right. What happens if a donor wants to partner with you? You you just can't. It's not. It's not an option. Uh, you mean partner or? In terms of funding, provide funding. It's not possible. They have to support a a, a local Vietnamese NGO. They can if they are here in Vietnam. They can have a two option for them. The first one, they can fund for local NGOs here in Vietnam. The second. Think that they if they, they still want to uh, give funding for international NGO like Helpish, for example, we have to sign the contract between them and our headquarter, and then the money will go through the headquarter to our office in Vietnam to Canada. Yes. Okay, and then yes to Vietnam. Okay. Yes, exactly. I mean, fundraising is. So, so fundraising is difficult, right? We've had these conversations before. <laughs> we, exactly. Exactly. We've had very honest conversations about how hard fundraising generally is. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> then there's fundraising for something like nutrition advocacy, which is at the you know top end of the scale of hard things to fundraise for. It's not sort of um, 
you know, a, a children's cancer ward, for example, which is a lot easier to fundraise for. Um, but also the fact that you're doing this in Vietnam, I, I, I struggle to find sort of a, an, another example of, of, of a more challenging set of circumstances to actually fundraise for. But so you have very little option. You, you must, you rely heavily on international funders. Exactly, exactly. We, we almost rely on international funders, not in Vietnam. And then also, like you said, that we're working a lot on uh, advocacy thing and research thing. So, and getting funding from the individual on advocacy and research is, is not their priorities or they're not anything like tangible or it takes time and etc. So that's why it's not easy for getting funder. Funding is, is, is not easy. And getting funding for research and advocacy is more difficult. And yeah. get, we also need to get funding from international donor, not mm-hmm. domestic donor. It's an incredibly difficult set of circumstances. So where is your funding coming from? Is the majority from Canada? Is, uh, where, you know, is, it, is it from Europe? Is it, where does it all come from? Uh, we, we have been received funding from very diversified sources like from the government of Canada, IDRC, ZIZS, and we also receive funding from the, some foundation like Bean and Media Gate Foundation, via Southeast Asia Tobacco Control Alliance. Uh, we also receive the funding from uh, Bloomberg. Uh, Bloomberg Philanthropies? Bloomberg, yeah, yeah, Philanthropy. We are campaign for tobacco freakies and uh, global, health, uh, global Health Advocacy Incubator, JJI. And um, we also received some uh, from funding from the foundations, small foundation like Unifor, Peter Gindan. So okay. this is like very diversified from both government and from non-government. And you're the you're the country director, right? Yes. In 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 Vietnam, you have sort of massive program responsibilities and fundraising on top of that as well. How do you? How do you find the time to to and, and make the decision about how much time to put to fundraise to developing these proposals? Very, very good question. Um, <laughs> we are uh, we are small organization, and all our staff have responsibilities in doing fundraising, and but um, like. Program staff are responsibility in developing the project idea, finance staff working on estimated budget and program staff. And one of the the top of my tasks is for fundraising because without funding, the organization can can survive. So this is very uh, key point for, for me. And yeah, as you said, it's too busy and we have many things, but the key point for me when looking at the fundraising is the first thing that is in line with our mission and, and vision for Helpbridge and then our uh, program strategies are not the first important thing. The second thing we can uh, I myself when uh, saying that is this um, we are uh, in, uh, eligible or not. Okay. Because I can share the, a, a story and like a big lesson learned for us Okay. Uh, few years ago, when we prepare the, uh, the the concept note, yeah, the proposal. Oh yes, our concept. I can't remember right now. Uh, 
for a, a foundation. And at that time, we failed. The year after that, they opened the corner again. And now we think that we have a better idea and we come up with writing, very beautiful one. We spend a lot of time working on that, etc. And we press the submit. Few months later, we received the feedback saying that we are ineligible because the funding is uh, it, uh, one of the criteria is it say for is this the uh, the, the, the funding for small organizations, small and medium organization. And on that year, we received a big funding from the government uh, of Canada for other countries, for, from our headquarters for, for Bangladesh. It's around like 10 million dollars. Wow. Okay. And then... So it wasn't even funding for your programming in Vietnam. It was for funding that was coming through Vietnam for Bangladesh. No, no, no. I mean, I mean the because we submit under the name for the headquarter. Okay. Not under the name of Vietnam. Right. And at that years, our headquarter received big funding from for for Bangladesh. So we are not in uh, eligible with that. But the year before that, we check for the criteria, and we are eligible. But for the year after that, we forgot to check if we are eligible or not because we are the program people with the writing and then we invest a lot of time and energy on that and then we forgot to recheck if we are eligible or not. That's a difficult lesson to learn. And yes, and then we so silly. I We, we all think that well, how are we so silly like that? We, we forgot the key point for the check eligible or not. But it's a big lesson learned for us, and 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 that and the sort of how how things change as well, and not to make assumptions around what was relevant last year. Yes, is is not always the same the next year, and and um, exactly. sort of, and that's with donor policies as well, right? I mean, exactly. The, but but this this feels always, and this is something that. We, we're trying to do through this program is to, to help people really focus their proposals as part of this program except the global radicals program it is is that this is all on you you know this is all on the vietnam office and your limited resources and the time and effort the hours weeks that you spent putting together this proposal you're never going to get that back and that's so difficult that's such a difficult thing to have to and and I and I find it's happening. I find it happens all over the world. Is that a technicality or something changes means that a proposal for is is no longer eligible, or that there's a slight change in policy, or that there's a slight change in the requirements about the legal status, for example, of organisations, and that these are are really fundamental, but they're not particularly well communicated by donors as well. But this feels like this is all on country offices. Uh, actually, the, uh, for Helpbridge, we received a lot of support from headquarters in supporting us for fundraising because we know that this is an important thing. And they not only uh, help us to um, identify the potential opportunities for writing consumer, but also they work very closely for uh, developing the, the idea and the concept. Of course. And back to the case, back to that case, uh, at that time, the program person in headquarters worked very closely with Vietnamese office here uh, to writing that uh, concept note. 
and we work hard and we achieve. But just we just only focus on the for the the, the program section. Even we follow all the requirement from uh, donor, etc. But we forget the key point. So I think that yes, this is like not not only from the headquarter and then the country office, but also from the program people with the finance or administration people. Yeah, kind of that. But again, it's I think that is our fault. Is I mean the program people from headquarter and help bridge Vietnam team at that time. We we not check that. What do you do now before every proposal? Do you have a Do you have a process that you go through now? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. So the first thing, like like like, like I said, is just to see that in line with our our strategies or not. The yeah. first one, the first important, and the second thing is for criteria. And the the third uh, the third point is that we uh, we 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 send to the relevant people to discuss. Which for the to go or no go, for that before we go in detail and invest a lot of time on that. That's a, that's 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 a good a good lesson to share as well. Having a very strong process and that's a great checklist, right? Is is first does this align with our strategy? Second, is are we eligible and do we meet the criteria for this proposal? And then third, thinking about partners and collaborations. Is this possible? Do we have the group, the organizations, and the capacity to deliver what we're promising to deliver? So I think that's a great sort of three checklist, uh, three things to focus on. But even sometimes I like, think that is so silly. Like if to share with other people, like it's just quite silly because it's very obvious. But actually, it's our big lesson learned for that. If if your if your lesson <laughs> is sharing your one lesson stops one other person from doing that that would be <laughs> fantastic <laughs> if you're enjoying this conversation and would like to hear other global perspectives on fundraising and leadership in the nonprofit sector then please do subscribe using the links in the show notes if you want to find out more about our work please do visit our website fundraisingradicals.com now back to the conversation. I I remember when you were doing the program, you um, sort of two years ago, the, the global fundraising uh, leadership program. You you had to, it was during COVID. You're a medical doctor. You had to step out of your role, and you were you were volunteering as a medic. Can you tell us? Can you tell us a little more about? about that and, and how you how the office and, and, and the work and the partnerships flexed during COVID and how much time you had to actually do your job versus the volunteering? Yes, uh, during COVID uh, and then uh, we, we had to work from home. And uh, yeah, of course, this is like very difficult. It's more difficult time for me because it's the first time ever I managed staff who working from home. It's not like from physical meeting or and then it's quite a burden for example if I can talk with you I can mark this a meeting online but and meet, talk with you like in one hour face to face it's totally different with online like I feel that I feel more exhausted when talking online rather than like face to face discussion so in some days like when we well, when we worked it for, for, from home, I had like three or four meetings and I feel very exhausted. 
and feeling like not only in terms of physically, but in terms in term of emotionally. And at that time, we because it's many cases in Ho Chi Minh at that time, it's many COVID-19 cases in, in Ho Chi Minh is seriously. And then when I saw on the television saying that a lot of children are affected and the poor women are affected. So I feel that I, I need to do something. I, I can, and then at that time, my friend sharing uh, voluntary work as the, anyone they call anyone who have medical background can have for them to support, to provide advice. And like, is this uh, some people when we talk with the people with COVID-19 patients? At that time, in Vietnam, is COVID-19 is kind of, how can I say, is this a, Kind of serious dizzy and people scared of that and then no one want to talk with that people. It's like a kind of discrimination or isolation. Okay. So and uh, they they invite us using the high technology, using the phone, like we we can using the the laptop with the internet connection and die and and call for the patient with COVID nineteen to asking them how how are they any symptoms, etc., and then give them advice and connect it with the doctor. So it's just like not require much on medical thing, uh, but it since then have like from the medical background, I can support them to identify which is the like, serious or it is a warning symptom. I need to refer for the person in charge of that. And um, at that time, we still have no vaccination yet. And many cases have been in emergency thing. Like, for example, I still remember a few cases I have deal with at 10 p.m. in the evening because I have no time during the daytime. So I call them from 8 p.m. to 10 p.m. It's a little bit too late for them. Yes, I know, but have no no time. And <laughs> but this is so this is on top of work. So you were still working full yes. time, and then you were doing this on top in the evening. Exactly, mm -hmm. exactly. And so I, I call them from eight pm to nine pm, and some the uh, usually I focus on try to depend on how many patient I were allocated. So usually I put from eight to nine pm, trying to fix on that time because, but. In, I still remember some cases they had in, in uh, uh, difficult for breath, so I have to make further call to etc. So it can last until 10 p.m. or even 11 p.m. to trying to find out any hospital available for uh, to receive the emergency care, and then the ambulance is not ready, and the doctor is busy, and then calling the health center at the commune is all busy and and trying to come back to patient to keep them calm and ask uh, require them or guiding them how to breathe um, deeply and slowly etc so is this a uh, take time but um is this very tight sometimes is this good that um uh, they feedback us it's very helpful and very useful when we call them but also some people they not happy with us. They say that why are you asking a lot, etc. They and they say that and I explain to them that I'm working here is voluntary because they're afraid that we they do something like um take advance from that and take the uh, cheated them or etc. And I explain to them that uh, I'm doing voluntary, I'm a medical doctor, etc. And they ask voluntary why you come to Ho Chi Minh City why are you sitting in Hanoi and just talking 
and uh, at that time it disappointed me a lot. But but I thought that yeah, we are here looking is voluntary, and then why I had to be upset with such kind of feedback? So I keep continuing and just drop him. I said that if you don't, you, you didn't want me to call you again, okay? I can put it down here saying that you don't. Uh, you, you do not want us to following up so I dropped the case and then trying to think positively for that but again it's like back to the your question that is like combination uh yeah it's it um it's it's on top of my work but it also bring me some um how can I say motivation for our work and I think that oh okay we still we we we, we still why we are here in Hanoi, we cannot do anything to support other people, but we still can contribute something for other people in Vietnam and in the world. So why we can support that? So that's am- that's amazing. It's an amazing commitment. And also because I'm a medical doctor, but I'm not practice in in the hospital and not talking with the patient. So it's make me feel that okay, I'm still like. I still can practice some uh, knowledge that I learned from the universities and uh, things like that. So, yeah, I still like feeling a useful people or the people with some value for that. But is that, is that a, you know, you have your medical training. Is there a sense of like you, you have to, you know, it, it, it's, it's important, it's valuable, and, and whenever called upon, you have to put yourself forward to volunteer this? Exactly. Exactly, because otherwise I, I feel that I'm not doing, how can I say, it's just a, I've been trained being the medical doctor. And if I didn't do anything, it's my fault, my responsibility for not doing something to help other people. So, But it's interesting because this is a theme, this is a, a recurring three theme throughout these conversations, is, is this sense of duty. Mm, exactly. The duty of care. Yeah, it's this duty of care that is is of doctors of, but it, it you know it goes beyond the medical profession as well. People who are working in INGOs, people who are working in local NGOs, have this this duty and this willingness to to step up, to to put themselves forward and say, look, I I I have this experience and and I and I'm going to work for the community, and that requires a level of determination and resilience to, to, to do that on top of your already demanding huge job to add that to it and you know how do you how do you sustain yourself how do you make sure you you know look after yourself within with that duty and that burden of that duty yeah interesting question my previous boss a long time ago he told me that i'm a person as a communist person <laughs> is this the person who want to <laughs> is this a person who who want to do for other people rather than for for i myself so he he already pointed out long long time ago he told me that and i think that is this Somehow it's correct. I I want to do the good thing for other people. Even like is I feel like I have work more hours, but I feel very I I get gain the positive energy mm-hmm. to bring back for my work. So I think that it's not like like I'm doing voluntary, but it's also help me a lot. So you, so you sort of get that that sense of personal fulfillment, but also that sense as you've just described is 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 very powerful. Yes, and also, and also because uh, using the very 
high technologies for using of that. Like uh, it's a system like all the people resisted on that, and then we can just press the button and call, and then we can update the situation. So I'm also thinking deeply about that. We can apply such kind of technology to monitoring the. The children, nutrition, children, or the health status of the children, and for example, in the people from, uh, in ethnic minority, very far to rich area, mm-hmm. we cannot go there. Like even for the people at the commune health center, they cannot visit the, the children like every month. So they can just uh, from the the center from uh, in 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 the commune health center. They just uh, because. In that, uh, they have computer, they have internet, so they can press the button, the call button, and then can update, then call the mother, can update the situation. Or uh, even like when we can reminding for the vaccination date. Okay, uh, kind of that. I'm just thinking how to apply such kind of thing in our work. And and are there are there donors that are interested? Are you coming across donors that are interested in providing the funding for? investment in technology that will help you do those things i'm trying i'm trying, trying. Now. I, yeah I'm trying. are you succeeding <laughs> not yet not yet so, so you're looking for very specifically tech investors who are interested in in nutrition advocacy in vietnam it's a niche i think but but it, it feels like a, a very sort of impactful investment in your work and something that can really help you reach communities that are that that are far away from the centers and um, and perhaps need that support exactly so yeah i'm trying to on the other side for advocacy work we also want to do things like using applying the technology so we can reach the people who we cannot reach uh, to support them to improving their life. Or uh, oh, this example, like when the women, like when they knowing their pregnancy, they can put in that system and then we can reminding them for the uh, pregnancy check, uh, uh, like the vaccination, or we can provide the education thing for them, like or consultation for them through the phone, etc. So... Are there technology organizations within Vietnam who who have this skill and capacity? Uh, yes, that's the one. Yes, the one. There are. Yes, the one that I I just mentioned for 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 the COVID nineteen monitor is this uh is initiative by a startup uh, in Vietnam. And and can you but but are you are there too many blocks and barriers to you creating a, a funded partnership? Would that have to be through other partners? Yes. Yes, it is a thing that um, like um, and how can I explain? This is a need to systematically from the, the 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 government. Firstly, from the government, and the secondly, it is to finding the any donor who willing to invest on on that mm-hmm. thing because it's not. Because it's also including some risk for that. We know, for example, is this a privacy thing? By the name of people there, the address, and that um, data, the data management side of it, and privacy. Yeah. Yes, 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 yes. And then um, some some agencies they still con uh, questions about the privacy thing. Mm-hmm. Uh, okay. And some people still hesitated to do some technology because the 
after COVID, like people using a lot of apps, like for, for in Vietnam, like uh, more than 20 apps, applications on, smart, on smartphone on COVID-19 and people overwhelming with that. So they're not interested on that. But um, I'm still, I'm still been very keen on to and looking yeah. for that one because I'm still thinking for the uh, for the remote area because people were still there and many people we still not reaching reach out so that's why we still want to to work for that. And this is this this is not just a you know this is not just an issue within Vietnam. This is a, this is a global issue. Access to healthcare. I know we're having conversations here in New Zealand about how uh, Maori and Pacifica communities that are remote uh, receive a, a much poorer service when it comes to healthcare. And this is, I mean, not, you know, in terms of the differential here compared to the differential in, in, in northern Vietnam or in, in Afghanistan or, you know, in, in Peru, you know, the, the, the challenge uh, about access to healthcare and the importance of technology in, in, in helping to bridge this gap is it, massive. So uh, is this, will this, is this likely to become a priority for you for international donors? Yes, I think, I, I still think that this is very important and technology could help the, bring the gaps between the uh, geographic areas. So the technology will play an important role for that. Yeah. I've got so many questions for you. I don't. I don't know where to. I don't, <laughs> so many questions. I, I speak to a lot of fundraisers, and 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 a lot of fundraisers. You know, fundraising is difficult. I still, when I when I speak to you, and the sort of layers of challenges that you're facing, and you're still sort of laughing and smiling about, even though fundraising, your fundraising is so difficult. <laughs> How do you, yeah, where, there's something about this determination, I feel like, that sort of grit that, um, that, that, that is so central to being successful in fundraising and, and in international programs as well. It feels like there's a real, this determination and commitment is so fundamental. Yeah, <laughs> I Think that is like um, from pers- uh, personal uh, perspective, we need to like like you said that it's very difficult, but we still keep keep working on. So it is a positively thinking. It is important. We know that is 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 not easy. So we can keep keep working on that. But also from the uh, professional working, we we know that uh, many donor has come. To, uh, come along with us for many rounds of funding. So the most important thing to keep them to um, to fund us because of our result, our impact of our work. Mm-hmm. Uh, we have to show them the value of money they invested. And as uh, I think as mass investor, donor have to look for the good grantee to help them to achieve their mission and vision as well. So that's why we need to show them the value we added to their organization. Mm. But not all projects are going well as planned, honestly, to say that. Of Some projects, for like our control reasons, may not success as we expected. Like a few years ago, we received a grant pilot by sharing model in a tourism cities in Vietnam. In, in Huyan, maybe you know of that area. And main target clients are foreigners. 
And unfortunately, when we just complete to set up the infrastructure like the bike stop, a separate lane for bike purchasing by building up an app for bike hiring, mm-hmm. when everything is ready to roll now, COVID-19 came, border closed, lockdown, no foreigner, no tourists. Mm-hmm. And our project team at that time had to keep um, the donor informed about the situation and involving them, involved them in, in discussion for solution. So I think this is a clear communication and transparency about the project, particularly when it's not going well as planned, is very important. And how was that bad news received by the donor? And, and, and what happened? Are they still with you? Did they all fall apart? How- yes, they, they still with us. And they know that's the situation there. We inform them and we cannot change. We try our best already and the situation is out of our control. And yes, that project is a pilot project. We are not successfully for that project, but it's not our fault. And they still keep funding for us, but for another uh, another project on another areas, not on my sharing that project at all. But this is this is important, I think. That honesty and that transparency is is what builds trust. So even I, I think there's a there's often a misconception that donors only want to hear good news. And I think the reality is that donors want to hear the real news. Yes, exactly. And and not just be sort of fed this constant stream of positivity and what's gone right. I think what happens in 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 my experience is that when bad news is shared, what it does is, and when it's done well and communicated well, is it deepens it deepens the partnership, it deepens the trust, and yes, exactly. the sort of a, a sense of um, that sense of being in this together. And I think that that sort of partnership is is really important and, and shows a shows a, a certain maturity in in that connection between the donor and the and the INGO exactly. Yeah, exactly. We have to keep in touch with our donor proactively to share with them our success, of course. But uh, we also share with them some emerging issue or the problem that we observe or realize, and together with them to to think about the solution, and not um, uh, like informing them at the last test, like everything uh, bloom and then we out of control now so we, we should yes suddenly it's like all good news and yes. then all of a sudden it's really bad it's, it's yes, keeping, yes yes yeah yes <laughs> <laughs> to them as a part of the how can I say as a part of the, the situation not they are not outside of the situation so this is the way we we're working with the staff of, from the daughter you know and and I, I I joke about the sort of like good news, good news, good news, and then really bad news. But I've done that before. I've I, I like that. You know, we can manage this little hiccup in the program. Uh, we can we can manage this next little hiccup in the program. But then these things can snowball um, if things aren't going particularly well, and it can be you know shifting personnel, and it can be sort of changes in circumstances. But even when those, if, uh, what I learned early on is that early in the stages, when things do start to even they may seem small 
having that communication and having that level of transparency means that if things do get worse, the donor is still with you. Exactly. Yes, exactly. It's the same for my approach for working on that. That was a hard lesson I learned early on, though. (laughs) (laughs) I have many of them. (laughs) (laughs) Oh, really? (laughs) Yeah. You have any um, situation that when you share that with them, the, the, the problem, this is even from the early stage, any negative reaction from daughter? Yeah, I, I mostly mostly positive, but that's because I think of the of, of the effort myself and, and teams have put into building those sort of individual relationships as well as the sort of partnership as a whole. But there have been instances when when you know I I'm you know really messed up by you know so for example not inviting somebody really senior to an event that they should have been invited to and that sort of you know dense or, or when things have gone wrong and. Some donors, inevitably, you know, these are people we're dealing with. We're working with people. If something goes badly wrong, that might not be recoverable. And I have, I have, yeah, there are funding relationships that have gone very badly. But, uh, and, you know, my fault, donors' fault sometimes. It's a whole mix of, um, but, but I think what we can do is, particularly the effort that it takes to bring a new donor in, it is a, a lot less effort to maintain a, a relationship, a partnership with a donor than it is to keep bringing new ones in. And I think that investment is so important and that communication and that constant trust building. Yes, yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. And I think that also is depend on the, the person that we work with. It's not depend on the organization because I thought that the donor or the organization, they... They 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 very they work well. Not some people themselves is not good. It doesn't mean that that organization not good. Yeah, of course. Yeah. Do you have so so with most of you because you're in the in the Vietnam office and you have headquarters in Canada. Do you have direct contact with the donors, or do you go through Canada? Is it all coordinated by Canada? Is it different for each partnership? Depend on what kind of donor that or what kind of the project we have. For example, with the for example, if the project have um, how can how can I explain? If the project for from uh, receiving from uh, from the headquarter and then give funding from different uh, country office okay. like Vietnam is also one. So the headquarter will deal with donor there. But if for the any donor working only specifically for help with Vietnam. Like for example, that we receive the funding from uh, TFK Tobacco from uh, uh, Tobacco Free Kit campaign, so we can receive, we can communicate directly with the the head uh, the the donor at headquarter. At the headquarter, I mean. Yeah, and how does it feel? The difference between from 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 your perspective in the Vietnam office, how does it feel about sort of your role and the quality of that partnership from your perspective, the ones you manage directly and have direct contact with donors and those that sort of are, are, are managed by head office, because this is this is common across the entire INGO sector. There's, you know, some are direct and you have direct contact. Others are managed by from Geneva, New York, um, Canada. What's, how, how, do, how does it feel from your perspective? It's very difficult for me to compare 
Because, for example, if there's a receipt for the, for the project that uh, received by the headquarter, and then we just only report to the headquarter about that project or any some problem, and we we considering they are as our how can I say funding? Yeah, so so you're so they're your donor. Yes, yes, yes. We 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 kind of that because uh, we we have not to deal with the directly with the donor. And all the things we report for the headquarter, and the headquarter will working directly with the donor. So we have no dealing with the, the donor. So we don't know. But but that's really interesting because I think that's a, that's very common. Is that offices based uh, in the global in in the global south in the global majority often have that sense of if if head office is playing a sort of brokering role and sort of leading on big proposals that 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 those people are your donors which is a really interesting dynamic within ingos um that's you know you know when 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 and when it comes to sort of building proposals for direct donors it, it, it it's just very complex and, and and very interesting i think um, and i think it increasingly is as sort of you know as the localization of international development continues is that more and more, I think donors are demanding direct contact with offices in Vietnam, Afghanistan, Myanmar, etc. So I think there's going to be a real evolution in 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 that over the next decade or so. I'd hope because I think that having that sense of ownership of donor relationships is such an important part of of, of fundraising and having that that the power. The, the ability to, to nurture and support and, and inspire donors directly rather than sort of relying on a, other parts of the organization. It's, it's a difficult tension, I think, that a lot of people will recognize who are listening to this. Yes, so as I said, it depends on kind of the project. So we we, we we are happy with that. We of course yes, it's okay if we uh, if we uh, communicate directly with donors. And even sometimes we feel less uh, stress when we have <laughs> yeah. to communicate with donor. <laughs> yeah. Okay. I, I, yeah. That that there is a silver lining there, right? There is a the sense of that it's uh, that I guess when 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 a head office takes on responsibility for that, then it's you know that's the responsibility you play your role in terms of reporting impact, etc. But exactly. the the relationship management, the partnership management lies elsewhere, and that because that is a lot of stress. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I remember, I, I, don't, I hope you don't mind me talking about this, but I remember we had a call, must have been maybe a year ago, and you had a massive proposal. Ah, for Lego. Yeah, huge research proposal, right? Yeah, yes, yes. Ah, for IDRC, yes, 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 yes. One. Yes, I remember. And it was, it, was a, it was a significant piece of work, and there were so many moving pieces and... Um, it, you know, you 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 needed sort of like uh, academics in 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 North America to sign on to this. You needed local partners, and I just remember you feeling overwhelmed by the whole <laughs> the whole massive pressure of pulling this all together. Yes, yes, you have very good memory. Yes, I still remember for that one. Uh, we uh, at that time we have a re- the, uh, writing the proposal for IDRC. Hmm. Uh, this is um I think it's something about the research about um, something related to COVID or uh, the women or the 
like working, it's kind of that it's uh, our health status. Ah, it's impact of the health status and the economic recovery after COVID nineteen. That's right. And yes, of course, this is they required a lot of uh, they call the um, uh, principal investigator should be from the American, uh, from the Canada, mm-hmm. and also from Vietnam and from from also the academy here in Vietnam and uh, people from gender, people from ethnic minority, people from the uh, people with disabilities, etc. It's so very, how can I say, it's just like, like a hot pot, like for everything. Yeah, it was. <laughs> the, the donor demands were, were, were spectacular <laughs> for that. And, and, but, you know, this is, this is not uncommon. This is, I think a lot of people do get to the point when they're pulling together proposals that rely on other people's engagement and signing it's 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 not easy yeah and then thanks for our headquarter to found out the one who this is uh, from the academy in, in canada because we are here we could not find the suitable one for that so yeah it's uh, it's just good that we have the headquarter our headquarter here very supportive and very willing because even at first they they told me that is this very challenging? Is this very competitive one? And we may not have a capacity for working on that. But if I still want to do it, they will support me. Okay. So. And you said, yes, <laughs> let's do this. <laughs> Similar one with um, another uh, proposal that we developed for mental health. Okay. Because I thought that the, the mental health is also a big problem here in Vietnam, and then we want to do something for that. And but uh, for Helbridge at headquarters and in in Vietnam in country office, we do not expertise on that. Okay. But there's an increasing demand for that expertise. Yes. 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 But when I share with the headquarters, they also uh, shared their concern that. They, we, we do not have the expertise, but uh, uh, my, my boss, my line manager saying that if I'm interested to work on that, they will support. And then they supported us and uh, even we not successfully for that uh, proposal, but I felt that it's a lot of things we can learn from that as well. When you, when I, I think it's often proposal building it's interesting hearing you say that because you learned a lot from that proposal even though it wasn't successful what were the things about it from the process the partnerships that you sort of the conversations you had the sort of what 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 were the lessons you took from the fact that it wasn't successful oh it's um a lot i think that a lot the first thing about in terms of the program we need to have a clear like long frame like we, we should know what we the, what we want for the goal, the objective, and the activities, etc. The first thing, but the second thing is also important that for looking for partnership, I do founding the, the, the any potential don uh, partner who are good at something, and then we can work together, and then we can take advantage of like the. When we collaborate, we can utilize the strength needs of each parties to join with us. So I think that's important. Like for similar with Lego Foundation core, uh-huh. we uh, we think that it's good to do, but we could not find any 
potential uh, partner to work with. So finally, we drop it. Mm. But I find, yeah, it's, it's, it's interesting, isn't that the decision about whether, when, what to go for, what not to go for, but also the idea that an unsuccessful proposal, if you do everything right, you have, you know, no control often as to whether that gets funded beyond that. But the, but the partnerships, the internal conversations, the connections that you make as a result of pulling together that proposal and the value of that, you don't know how useful and when that'll be useful for you in the future as well about in terms of all of those connections and the understanding of the issues and, and growing your sort of network and expertise. That's really interesting. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Yeah, exactly. This is, I, I mean, this is a week, uh, I, I, I try to keep my mind to think of, uh, to remember two sentences, do the writing and do the thing rise. Okay. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> it's it yeah, it, it's good. It's good that sort of level of focus is is really important. And thank you so much for your time today. I massively appreciate you talking to me. It's it's fascinating to hear about the challenges and the opportunities and the realities of 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 what you do and then and fundraising in vietnam so thank you so much for your time thank you so much it's in so very pleasure for me to talk with you always every time talking with you very nice thank you for listening hard to this conversation with dr tian nguyen I hope it's given you insight into the challenges of securing funding in Vietnam. I'm sure that much of what Anne shared is relevant to you if you're working in Asia, Africa, the Middle East or Latin America, where government policies can significantly narrow fundraising opportunities and even freedoms. But there are so many things we can all take away from this, whether it's the role of grit and determination in fundraising success and the ability of people like Anne to find motivation and continue their work even when the odds are so powerfully stacked against them. Or whether it's managing the real-life stress of fundraising, sharing the burden of designing and delivering major, complex proposals across multiple stakeholder groups. And of course, the many lessons we can learn from proposals that aren't successful. And the silver lining that is new partnerships and conversations and ideas that are initiated as we explore fundraising opportunities. As always, we're grateful to Scaling Up Nutrition, Civil Society Network and Care International who are co-funding the Global Radicals Fundraising Leadership Program, of which this podcast is just one part as we navigate global fundraising together as a global community. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please do subscribe to the Fundraising Radicals podcast on your favorite platform. And if you would like to find out more about the Fundraising Radicals, please do visit fundraisingradicals.com. Thanks for listening.